You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. In his sermon last week when he was visiting with us, Bishop Ken reminded us of one of the most basic truths of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. There is no and to be added to this, nothing we add on top of God's free gift to produce our own salvation. As the bishop said, there are things that mark the life of the believer, but those are not things that make us children of God. Those are things that flow out of being the children of God. This principle is consistent throughout Scripture. Whenever we find a set of commands indicating how we are to act, those commands invariably follow a reminder of our identity. We are chosen in Christ by His grace. The free gift nature of the gospel is especially important to keep in mind when we come to a passage like our reading today from Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4. It is filled with a bunch of imperative verbs that command us to take action. Rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Do not be anxious about anything. Fill your mind and your actions with what is good. And we must remember, of course, that our salvation does not depend on any of these behaviors. We are called to live in joy and peace as a response to the gospel. The idea here is always God has saved us. Now let's act like it. But there is another potential pitfall when we come to a passage like this one that I think we have to watch out for how we interpret things like this in our own hearts. Because it's easy to say, okay, I know that my salvation does not depend upon me following these rules, that God gives me salvation as a free gift of grace. But we can come and say, okay, these things are supposed to mark the life of a Christian. This is what a Christian life looks like, is if we have... If we truly have been saved, these are the sorts of behaviors that we are going to show. And when we frame things like that, we have to be careful because we can place a tremendous burden upon ourselves and upon others who we call to follow Jesus. Because logically, if we say, if I am a Christian, I will rejoice always, it's the same as saying, if I do not rejoice always, I'm not a Christian. And we have to be careful not to place that burden upon ourselves. Because thinking this way puts us underneath an impossible standard. And it can have the opposite effect of what's intended. Instead of being encouraged and, encouraged and lifted up into the life of the gospel, we can be torn down. Constantly comparing ourselves to some mark that says, I, I fall short of this, and therefore I question my own faith, my own salvation. Is what I believe true because I don't see this fully in my life. Another line that the bishop told us to remember was that the Christian life is one of invitation, not obligation. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't give commands and expect us to obey. We talked a couple weeks ago about obedience, right? When we were looking at one of the, the parables that Jesus told. God does expect obedience, but that obedience is a joyful opportunity, an invitation to us, not a weighty obligation that tears us down. So how do we view commands like this through that lens? How can rejoice always, again I say rejoice, be an invitation and not a burden? 
we start, of course, by preaching ourselves the gospel over and over again. Through Jesus Christ, God has conquered the grave and invited us into eternal life. And it is a vibrant, beautiful, joyful life that he's invited us to. These commands are not given to us in order to scold us, but to invite us into the fullness of that life. They are given because we have a tendency to forget, a tendency to be overwhelmed by what is going on in the world around us, or in our own lives, our own circumstances, even inside of our own hearts. So God speaks through the noise of the world with a command, a word spoken in love that brings life. The words of God bring life. And his word to us is rejoice always. If that word is softened or qualified, if we try to, if we try to say, if, if God came to us and, and said it in a softer way, he said, you know, I think it'd be a great idea if you rejoiced. First of all, that's not how God speaks to us. Um, and second of all, if, we, if he came to us and it was softer, and if we, if we turn it into a softer thing, then we begin to lose the, life that, the, the fullness of the life that God has invited us into. It's harder to believe that it's true. But here it stands as a command. We can't dismiss it simply as a standard that we can never attain or one more rule we can never live up to. But it's given us to a, a command and it's repeated in case we miss it. Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. This command is an invitation to a joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances. Not a joy that rises and falls as our fortunes rise and fall, as things go well or things go poorly. For our salvation is secure in Christ. And no matter what comes, that cannot be taken from us. Not sickness or plague, not politics or hunger, not wildfires or riots, can separate us from the love we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we rejoice, because that's good news. And we always, always have good news, no matter what else is going on around us, no matter how bad the news seems when we look out, we know the gospel, we know the good news that endures. This command is not dismissive of our circumstances. One other danger that we have with a command like rejoice always is to think that as Christians we always have to put on a happy face to one another. That we can't share what's really going on in our lives. Or again, that somehow I'm being disobedient if I experience sorrow. Paul wrote this command while he was in prison, while he was suffering. And he actually mentions earlier in the letter that he was thankful that one of his fellow workers recovered from an illness so that he didn't have to experience more sorrow. The idea here is not that we cannot experience sorrow. In fact, we look to the life of Jesus, the life of Christ, who wept. Who wept when his friend Lazarus died, even knowing that resurrection was coming. He cried out and wept. He wept going to the cross, knowing the suffering that was before him. And he wept and cried out to the Father, surely this can be taken from me. And his entire life, is summed up in the Apostles' Creed by he suffered. This is the life of Christ that we follow. And yet, Jesus was a man who knew great sorrows, and yet Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that even as he approached the cross with tears of sorrow, 
even as he was aware of the suffering that he was going to go to undergo. He, he still did it. He still moved forward with faith in the Father for the sake of the joy that was set before him. In the Christian life, joy that we are involved in, the invitation to joy is not exclusive of sorrow. There are things that are held in tension and held even at the same time. We can feel deep sorrow at the hurt and brokenness of the world, at the hurt and brokenness in us, at what's going on in our families and all around us. We can feel deep sorrow while also knowing that we have a deep and abiding joy in Christ. In fact, as Christians, I think sometimes when we are living well, we feel the sorrow more keenly because it's like sitting down to a meal and you take something, taste something um, sweet and then you take a, a drink of something bitter. You have some, some bitter coffee right after you've had something sweet and, and perhaps the bitterness is actually enhanced. It feels stronger because we've tasted something that is so sweet and so good. We know from the depths of our being that this is not the way that things should be. That God created a world that was good and we are intended for a world that is good. But we are caught up in the brokenness of it and we feel the weight of that sorrow. And yet it is not a sorrow that crushes us. It's not a sorrow that weighs us down with no hope. Because we have the joy of the gospel. We preach to ourselves again and again the joy of our salvation and that this endures. We remember that, like the psalmist who said, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and yet you're with me. You set a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. So I know that I am not alone. And I know that my Savior lives and that all will be restored. We have a deep hope that gives us a deep sense of joy. And that joy can give us the courage to endure. And we know that the God who gives us the command to have joy also provides all that we need in order to have it. He gave us his son. He spared nothing from us. He gives us his spirit to lift us up and to fill us with joy now. He gives us this body here so that we can preach to one another the gospel, so that we can share our lives in openness and vulnerability and know that they can be received because it's not something that's going to make people dismiss us because our community is big enough. It has enough hope. It has enough joy to receive sorrow as well. I want to stay here. This passage is actually one of the times where following the lectionary is hard because if I'm trying to preach on this whole passage, there's like three sermons at least um, in this passage in Philippians. But there's this theme that comes through that actually is really important because there's this theme of this series of commands that God gives us through what Paul wrote in Philippians. He tells us to rejoice, and if that was all that he wrote to us in this section in preaching, it would be enough for a full sermon. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, um, the way the, the translation that we read says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And in other translations, the word that, the, that is translated as reasonableness here is gentleness. In fact, the other times that that same Greek word shows up in the New Testament, even in the ESV, which is what we were reading out of this morning, is translated as gentleness. And it's often contrasted with violence um, or quarrelsomeness, that it's set up as a, as a tension between these two. The command to gentleness is not unrelated to the command to rejoice. 
because we can be gentle. We can be reasonable. Exactly because our salvation is secure. Because we have an enduring joy. We see this for those who don't have a secure hope. That they become violent and quarrelsome and try to hang on to what, what their view of the world should be. They, they try to hang on to the things that they have right now because they are afraid and because they don't have enduring joy. But as Christians, we can be different. We have enduring joy. We have enduring hope. We have the command to rejoice. And in that, because of that, we have the opportunity to engage those around us, outside of our community, with gentleness, with reasonableness, not getting caught up and scrambling and holding on and trying to avoid all sorrow and hurt for ourselves, but able to walk in sorrow with an enduring joy. In fact, I think one of the strongest things that we can do as a testimony to our faith is to walk alongside those who are suffering, to identify with those groups who are suffering, with those people who are suffering, and say, I will suffer with you because my joy is enough. My hope is strong enough that I can take up the suffering and walk alongside you. I can be gentle in your suffering, not placing burdens upon you because I know that there is an enduring hope. I can look and see and name the brokenness in the world without giving in to it. This is the hope of the gospel that is set before us. And Paul tells us immediately after that, he says, the Lord is near. And it's kind of unclear grammatically whether this, the Lord is near, is talking about what happens where he talks about joy and gentleness, or if this goes with the next passage where he's talking about anxiety and peace. And it might be one of those places where Paul is intentionally doing both, where the Lord is near kind of joins this together. We can be reasonable and gentle because we know that God is coming, that Christ is coming near again. He's near in time. The day of judgment will come. The Lord is near is oftentimes used in the, in the prophets as a reminder that the day of judgment is coming. And so we can be gentle because we don't have to judge and, and try to, to wipe off all evil on our own. In fact, we know that we can't be successful in that endeavor. It's not that we don't stand up for good, but we can do so with a gentleness, with a willingness to suffer because Jesus will judge all things. All things will be set right in him. But also the Lord is near to us in that he has given us his spirit and he is with us now. He's not far and distant and removed. He's not unfamiliar with what's going on. He's not caught by surprise by the way that 2020 has turned out. The Lord is near. He is present. He is here. He's here right now with us right now. And that allows us to take the next command that is given in this passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It's another thing that if we are not careful, we can add a burden upon ourselves for an impossible standard. I don't know about you, but I certainly cannot say that my life has been characterized by zero anxiety since I became a Christian. If that is your experience, please talk to me about it. I want to hear how you're doing that. Um, 
But it's an invitation again, because the world does and will give us much to be anxious about. And if we are not careful, what happens and what I, what I see and feel happening in the world around us, in our nation right now, is that those anxieties grow and they fill people's vision. They look upon the fears that they have and react in response to them. Clinging to what they can do to make things right. Looking for salvation in a politician who can set things right and remove the fears and anxieties we have about the direction that things are going. Or just ignoring them altogether. Numbing ourselves with the pursuit of empty pleasures. So we can turn our mind off and just not deal with the anxieties that are before us. But in this invitation that we have here is not to ignore the anxieties, not to pretend that these things don't happen or are not going around us, but to give us a fundamental orientation into a posture of trust where we can lift these anxieties up before the Lord. There's the implication in this command to present everything to God, to lift everything as request to God, is a reminder that there will be much to be anxious about. There will be many things to fear, but our hope is deeper. Again, our joy is deeper. Our joy is more enduring because the Lord is near and he has saved us. And we have this good news that we cling to and hold on to when everything feels like it is falling apart around us and we take it to God. This is a place where the Psalms can be very helpful. The Psalms are the prayer book of God's people. And they contain so much in them of this honest lifting of concerns and fears to God. There are Psalms of lament that look at the brokenness of the world and cry out, Lord, how long? There are Psalms that remind us, like the Psalm that we read today, that though we walk through difficult trials, the Lord is with us. There are psalms that lead us to worship, and in that place of worship, help us to draw near to God, to lift all of ourselves to Him. We hold nothing back. If we try to take anxiety, the things that can produce anxiety in us, and just sort of squirrel them away, and say, I'm not going to bring this to God, it's too much for Him, or too small for Him, He doesn't need to be bothered with this, then we lose the invitation here. We miss what he's inviting us to in this. He's inviting us to bring our entire selves to him. And in doing so, he promises the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a manufactured peace. This is not a false peace that says everything's okay when it's not. This is not an empty word of peace, where we wish for peace and we, we hope for it, but we don't really have any real longing for it any real belief and faith that it's going to come. This is a peace that is given to us because of what God has done for us in Jesus. We have been put at peace with God. We can walk with God because Jesus has come and walked with us. This is the invitation that we have in this command to not be anxious. The next invitation in this passage 
is to dwell on those things that are true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. It's another invitation that we could spend an entire week just talking about this. But this is especially true right now in an age that is saturated with media. There is so much that we can dwell on that stirs up anxieties, that looks at the brokenness without the redemption of Christ in the middle of it, that is, frankly, pulls us off into sin. There's much that we can put before our eyes and on our minds that is evil and not good. But there's an invitation here for us to turn to those things that are true and just and good. And implied in this invitation is that those things are there. There's this reminder that God created a world that is good, and though it has fallen, there are still signs of goodness all around. And as we look at those things that are good, we are reminded, too, that the ultimate source of goodness is God himself. That we look upon the gospel, we look upon Jesus, we look upon the Father, and we say, thank you for the grace that we have been given. Again and again, we come back to dwelling upon him, to looking upon him, because he is good and he's enduring, and the Lord is near. He is with us. Paul has another invitation where he, he tells people to behave as he behaves. To walk as he does with God. As the bishop reminded us last week, they didn't have the written gospels at this point that they could point back to and look at the life of Jesus. Paul was saying, if you want to see how Jesus behaved, look at me. But it's an invitation here to allow all of this, to allow our joy, to allow our sense of peace, our trust in God, to allow our setting our mind upon those things that are just and honorable and noble and true to change the way that we behave as well. This, our, our faith is not one that divorces us from the world and that we live in, that it divorces us from the ways that we act and move. Jesus became a man. He became incarnate among us. He walked among us, in this world, blessing the world with his very presence. And he asks us to continue to be that presence as we follow in the same steps that he has set in front of us. He allows us to do that. It's an invitation, again, to participate in the work of God, not just in our minds, but in our actions, in our hands, in the ways that we engage the world. The final invitation in this passage doesn't have an imperative in the same way that the others did. Instead, Paul describes his own life. And right after he gives the call to follow his example, he reminds them that um, he's been in need and he's learned how to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When I was a kid, that's probably one of the verses that was most taken out of context, um, is this idea that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What it's an invitation to is it's an invitation to contentment, 
an invitation to endurance in times of suffering and in times of plenty. An invitation to make true this, this call to joy, this call to peace. Paul is saying that the call to joy, the call to peace, the invitation that he extends to us in, in the, what we've already read is not based on circumstances. It's not something that goes up and down and it's happened sometimes and not others. He says in all times, whether I'm in need or whether I'm in want, I can be content because I have known the gospel. I have known the good news of what Jesus has done. I have known joy that is stronger than any sense of sorrow. I have known peace that covers up every anxiety. I have known the nearness of the Father and the nearness of the Son. This is the invitation that's extended before us. Jesus reminds us in his parable that the invitation is extended to many, but not everyone accepts. Not everyone walks in this life that we are invited to. Take stock of what it is that you're being invited to. You're being invited to a life that is shaped around the gospel, around the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You're being invited to a life of joy and gentleness, of peace, of goodness, of contentment. A life where we can be a light to the world, walking in the way of Jesus and showing them a better way. A more true way, a more, good, uh, more goodness that is around us. Not denying the sorrows of the world, but not giving in to them either. A way to walk with joy. Jesus invites you into this life. Right now, always, today. If you know him well, if you've walked with him for a long time, he invites you to remember that this is the life that you're called to in the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, if your life hasn't been touched in this way, he invites you to walk into this life, to step into it, to receive the invitation that he has extended. Let us walk in this life together. This is who we are as the church. It's a people that walk in the joy and the peace and the gentleness and the goodness of the gospel. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. To learn more about us, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.